to Say That, the podcast for your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jeff Brewer. Hello! With us all the way from Oakridge, Tennessee is Lee Younger. Go Blue. Go Blue, indeed. Is that a statement of political affiliation, football affiliation, or just, you know, a color in general? That's up to you, the listener, to decide. Hey, let's let's stick with the color theme. Let's paint with a wide brush. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Huh? Okay. Could be his, okay. his favorite classic jazz albums. There could oh. be a theme in there. <laughs> nice. Rhapsody in Red just doesn't sound very good, does it? No. No. Yes. Um, so welcome to uh, the first Say That of 2024. We're, we're glad you're here again. Um, fellas, as we record this intro, I'm, I'm rec- reminded once again, we've been doing this for a long time. That's right. true. To the point where I realized that part of the intro patter is me saying where we are. Because when we started this, like 12 years ago, it was novel to be for people to be recording from different places. Yeah. In a yeah, pre, yeah. Uh, pr- certainly pre-COVID, but pre-kind of uh, digital, uh, everybody has a podcast world. It was weird for people to be recording from two very different locations. We were frontiers, yeah, we, gentlemen. We held yeah. that in. The, uh, the technology wasn't there at the time. <laughs> no. So uh, yeah, we, we used to step over each other's toes even more than this. But it used to be bad. <laughs> oh, it used to be bad. Uh, but this is not bad. We're glad you're here with us. We've got a great show lined up. We've got some of your fantastic questions. But first, it's a Say That Sports Emergency. What? That's right. Not only, you may not know this if you're new to uh, the podcast, not only can you send in questions for us to answer in the question segments, but if you find something that you just think is crazy, you can just send it to us and say, you should do this as an emergency. And maybe we will. And that's the case <laughs> in with uh, our friend Rob, who uh, sent this tweet to Lee and I, which we shared to Jed, uh, from college football writer Bretton Murphy. Uh, before the college football, if you're not in America or you don't care about college football, it's really big in a way that is confusing to anyone who is not from, like, two regions of America, but it's really big. Um, <laughs> the point where there's a playoff, uh, the semifinal. We record this the night before the final. You'll hear it afterwards, so there's some weird... Dramatic irony there, because Lee is a huge fan of the University of Michigan, one of indeed the participants, the victors. defeating the the hated and uh, evil Alabama Crimson Tide in the semifinal. But before mm. they did that, they had a nice press conference, and we were <laughs> discussing this before before the recording. Um, the thing about people in high level athletics, but maybe particularly football coaches, is that they're psychotic. <laughs> they're very good at one thing you probably know people like this in whatever your field is if it's uh business or you have a you know, craft you like there's probably people in that who are exceptionally good at that one thing music is a good example to the detriment of being able to function as a normal human being in any other way yeah but the thing that's unique about high level athletes and coaches is they have that but they're also forced to interact with the media on a regular basis and that's how we get insights like this. Uh, Jim Harbaugh, head coach of the University of Michigan, was asked a religious question at Media Day, a big thing they do before the game. And he said, quote, I have a feeling that if Jesus were to come back now in this era, I suppose that many of his biblical analogies we use would be about sports as well as agriculture. Maybe a combination of the two. Solomon would have been a great coach, too. I have that feeling. Jesus would have been a five-star. He would have been a five-star <laughs> player, no doubt about it. 
he would have been a Hall of Fame coach. Oh, again, wow. if you're not, and we have to do a lot of table setting this one. If you're not familiar with the the language being used here, um, when someone is 17 years old, before these universities invest millions of dollars in them, in the hopes of profiting tens of millions of dollars off of them, uh, they'll give them a rating from zero to five stars of how good a recruit they are. So this is his way of saying Jesus would have been a highly sought after high school football recruit. And as much as I appreciate the pep, I have my doubts about that. <laughs> yeah. The, Coach Harbaugh is, uh, he is an optimist in a way that whoever the most optimistic person you've ever met is, they would seem like an absolute pessimist compared to this man. He is not well. And I, and I, I definitely second what Matt was saying earlier about football coaches. I can say that with some expertise being that I was raised by an American football coach, not one of the high level college ones, but the one quick thing that I've always thought was hilarious about my dad is he like, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know the date of my birthday and my sister's birthday, but he can tell you three possible scores of every game that he's ever coached in. He can break down what series it was, what time was on the clock, and the three scores are what the score was, what the score should have been if we hadn't made any mistakes, and what the score would have been if the officials weren't playing for them. And this is like this is a thing you can you can get in you can go all the way back to like 1975, and he can break all of that down. It's absolute. It's stunning how he can remember exactly what happened in a football game. But for Harbaugh to to think about Solomon being a good football coach, I mean that's just so unhinged. It's just such a bizarre like <laughs> a bizarre thing to say. It's also and, and you know for by all accounts, uh, Jim uh, Harbaugh is a very uh, dedicated man of faith, uh, Catholic, I believe. So I'm not casting aspersions, but it also has the the sense of just trying to remember a smart guy from the Bible because yeah. the, the nuts and bolts of what Solomon's really known for. I don't know if it makes for good coaching. Like, right? Should we run the ball or pass the ball? We'll divide the offense in half. <laughs> And whichever assistant is like, no, no, run it instead of dividing the offense in half. Like, aha, now we know. This is reminding me of an emergency we had one time where there was the there was one of those like uh, Jesus um, inspired like uh, action figures. Oh yeah, like the figurines. And yeah, and just uh, yeah, the figurine and and Jed making some comment about how Jesus had a nine pack. Yeah. In all the all Western I, I, depictions, Jesus ripped. Not a lot of mass, but ripped. <laughs> I've got something pretty great that I, I think is is really going to you know elevate our discussion here. I've I've gone. I don't to, see how that's possible, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I've I've gone to a generative AI system and I've requested that the AI write the Beatitudes. But if Jesus was a college football coach, oh, oh my word! Please, please. And b- before I proceed. I think, I mean, if you listen to the show, you know, I don't know anything about sports, but having grown up in the South, I'm pretty sure that older Southern dude is the right accent for me to deliver this commentary in. Yep. So I'm going to go with that. All right, y'all. Blessed are the team players, for they shall create a winning spirit. (laughs) Coach Jesus says, together you stand, divided you fall. Teamwork is the key to victory. Number two. 
Blessed are those who are humble in victory and defeat, for they understand the ebb and the flow of the game. Coach Jesus says, in triumph, stay humble, and in defeat, rise with resilience. The game is a journey, not just a destination. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So it got a little, the the AI, the chat GPT went a little um, Hobby Lobby towards the end there, but the the first one was like, that could be up in a in a built like written on the wall at the Clemson football building. Like blessed yeah. are the team players. Okay, well, wow. I, I got to share one more because I think this is man, this is good. All right, th- this is number four. Prepare yourselves. Get ready to be blessed, y'all. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for improvement, for they shall reach their full wow. potential. That's unbelievable. Oh, that is right on it. Yeah. We should get these to Jim Harbaugh because he will, again, engrave them on something in a locker room. Yeah. Well, that also, yeah. from the, to Jesus' coach, you know, and again, I, don't, I wanna, certainly don't want to cast any aspersions on my Lord, but. Um, he only recruited 12 guys and one of them decommitted pretty in pretty spectacular <laughs> fashion. So yeah, I'm just not the, sure he's got the, the tools. He hit the transfer portal for those 30 pieces of silver. The, the original NIL. Payments. The original NIL. Exactly. <laughs> that is. Yeah. Um, uh, cougar bananas. Um, but we, we move from that elsewhere in the world of sport to, um, a, a team that's not having quite as successful a season as your Michigan Wolverines, and that is the College of Biblical Studies women's basketball team. Um, they they recently made headlines, uh, made uh, sports center and whatnot for not the greatest reason. Uh, they lost to the Grambling uh, women's team, one hundred and fifty nine to eighteen. Wow! Oh heavens! And uh, if you're if you're Grambling. Um, is there a certain point at which you start to feel that there could be implications to destroying the College of Biblical Studies that soundly? <laughs> this is this is some Old Testament nerdery, but this is how Sennacherib wanted Hezekiah to feel when he's sending letters of no God has ever stood against our God and we are going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. And it's like... That's that. That's that's how he wanted that to end up. Not how it ended up for Snackerib. Of course, Spoiler. we all know Spoiler. that. Yes, um, the the um, the College of Biblical Studies men's basketball team not having a much better season with losses so far to Minnesota State, Texas Southern, and Grambling. Um, would you either of you care to take a guess at the mascot of the College of Biblical Studies? Oh no! Oh, Houston, dude. Texas based. That doesn't really help, but. Man, it's that is it's a target rich question, but I just I feel like I don't know which thing to land on. That's fair. Tell you what, I'll give you the real one because it's kind of boring, and then we can maybe see if we can improve upon it. Because they are the College of Biblical okay. Studies ambassadors, uh, ambassadors, which is a little hmm. lame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like there's a couple ways to go with this. There's like um, Liberty University is the Eagles, which is doesn't really have anything to do with anything. It's that's a fairly normal team mascot. Um, does Wheaton have a mascot? I thought Liberty were the Flames. Oh, they are. They just have an eagle on their helmet. They are the Flames. I may be thinking of uh, 
Jefferson City, Tennessee based uh Yes. University <laughs> Carson Newman, which is the Eagles. I like the idea. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I like the idea of going with a biblically accurate mascot for um like a a, a cherubim or a seraphim. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. Like that. And let that's it good. be the 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 with all the because eyeballs. it's biblical. Yeah, exactly. It's like the wheels within wheels covered in eyeballs and just like some some random wings because it is the College of Biblical Studies, right? We're going to have a biblically accurate angel mascot. I like it. I like it. it. To go right along with that, I'm wondering, and this could run afoul of NCAA rules, and I don't really know anything about that. So, But the College of Biblical Studies Nephilim, oh. and every player has a prosthetic sixth finger. I like that. That's great, uh, man. Elsewhere Thank in this, this world, I have found that uh, Wheaton College does have a mascot. They are the Thunder, and their mascot is a big fluffy elephant. Oh. A little. What? Okay. The elephant takes some of the oomph out of it, but Thunder is not bad for a, a religiously based organization. It, it's yeah. not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would like, although I would like to see them get defeated by another religious organization's team whose um, whose mascot are the still small voices. <laughs> see, yeah, that's yeah. the other way to go with very biblically accurate, humble mascots, the mustard seeds. <laughs> yes, that's good. That's good. I also found, and this may be, um, this may give us a hint into some of their woes. I found online the. A College of Biblical Studies Athletics recruiting questionnaire. Okay. We were mentioning, you know, with uh, Jesus recruiting uh, most of your high level, uh, larger college uh, operations, they go out and do the recruiting. They don't really wait for you to come to them, but uh, College of Biblical Studies has gone another way. Uh, it starts off pretty normal name, email, phone number, Twitter handle, and Facebook profile, uh, you know, address, date of birth, home church. Oh. Uh, family. Ask your father's mother's name and email. Do you have any friends and relatives that have attended College of Biblical Studies? Your academic, your high school, uh, name, year, GPA, ACT score, academic honors, if you attended any previous college. And only then does it get to athletic. Mm, and I feel, yeah, well, again, well, as a longtime college sports fan, that's not the order other places are prioritizing this in. Well, I think we're figuring out why these scores have been so lopsided. It really does feel like, um, you know, I, I don't know. I've never, I certainly was not recruited for any kind of athletic thing, but I don't feel that, you know, your major universities are going in and saying, right, we'll, we'll get to what position you play later. Um, tell us about your home church. <laughs> tell us about your tithing history. Yeah, they sure don't have your GPA and SAT score above uh, athletic accomplishments on if there were to be a form. That's funny. I did think of another problem with Coach Harbaugh's assessment of Jesus Please. as a football coach, and that is that, you know, football, American football is a violent sport, man. Yeah. If they hit you, you want to hit them harder. And the problem is right there in the Sermon on the Mount again, that I, I'm, I just feel like Coach Jesus would be like, you know what? If they sack our quarterback... Let us turn to them another quarterback right. and let them sack that one as well. <laughs> Your crack blocks just turn to the other cheek. Well, I think I uh, commented to you in our text thread at the time when, the college, when Jed brought the College of Biblical Studies to our attention that, um, you know, if you're really going to be hardcore about your theology, if one of the tenets of your religion is thou shalt not steal, 
your defense is going to be uh, suspect. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's really well, true. But this we, is an actual we, sports fact that the that the uh, curveball used to be used to be illegal in college baseball because of the Ivy League schools were still religious organizations at that time, and they felt that it was deception. For real? Yes, that's a true thing. You just if you were a, a pitcher. If you were a pitcher for Harvard or Princeton, um, you could not throw. They were still theological institutions. Yeah, it's you, you can't you can't throw a pitch that's a deception. You know, wow we we want a pitcher, not a filthy sinner. That's <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> Lee, as you said that, I was the joke I was about to make was that you know a coach Jesus never running play action because it is deceitful, and it's ah, nice to know nice. that even in making up things about Jesus being a Hall of Fame coach. We can't out stupid actual historical Christian <laughs> organizations in America, and in this case, uh, institutions of higher learning as well. So that's that's fun. That's right. Yeah, I don't think that Jesus would run the RPO either, because once you've put your hand to the plow, you know you can't turn back. Well, yeah, I mean, is is not the RPO the being lukewarm of play calls? It is neither <laughs> run or is. pass. That's it. And on that note, um, we understand that this show is is often niche, and never more so than the emergency segment, but that one we may have about done ourselves on. So if you care nothing or <laughs> yeah. know nothing about Some football, of those jokes were just for Rob. Yeah, or deep biblical cuts. Um, we appreciate you um, walking through that with us, or there are timestamps in your episode description that you can just skip around, and we encourage you to do so. That's right. The Save That Podcast is an a la carte experience. And on that, we will declare emergency off. And with that, we will move on to those fine questions that came in. If you have a question for us, you can hail us all the way to the end, or you can go into that episode description and find some links there to get in touch with us. Our first question comes in and says, there are things I would love to, quote, leave in 2023, but I'm not sure to actually go about putting them behind me. I think that's a, a fantastic uh, point. Um, especially this time of year. And Lee, where would we start off here? Um, it is a great question. I think it's a thing that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, how do I get to where I want to be? And and what are the things that I've identified myself in myself that I might want to move away from? I think a fundamental thing that I have seen to be true, not only in myself, but in other people that I've worked with and uh, walked alongside through life is you are very, very rarely just going to take something out of your life without putting something else in its place. Um, like the, the idea of just having a void where you were, you know, whether it was a compulsion or whether, uh, you know, you know, God forbid an addiction or, or just, just something that you're, you're deciding you want to change about yourself. We're probably not just going to remove that thing and not put something else better in its place. So with that being said, what do we do? The, the two things that I would like to kind of focus on the most is are that I would suggest that you set some goals towards what you would replace this thing that you're getting rid of with and find an expert in that, in that thing that you're going to replace with. So here's what I mean by that. Um, I would be looking for setting goals that have like practical, repeatable and achievable steps involved, not something absolutely enormous. Like in 2024, I am going to climb K2, you know, that I, I hope if, if that's your goal, I, I hope you get it done, but you're probably not going to do that unless you've been climbing for many, many, many years. 
Um, so something that's small, something that is practical, something that's actually achievable, some steps that you can put in place tomorrow. I'm going to have a different wake up time. I'm going to have a steady breakfast every morning. I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to call this, this person once a week that I've, I feel like I'm, uh, our relationship's dwindling, whatever those things are. What are some strategies for actually making that other thing that you're replacing the deal you want to get rid of with? How, how can you get some strategies in place that'll make that happen? And then with that in mind, think about your life and the relationships you have. Who is someone in your life who is really good at that thing? Who may be even an expert at that thing? The thing that you want to change or set up. Like, you know what? In, um, <clears throat> in, in 2024, I want to make um, walking and hiking a part of my weekly experience of my life. I, that's a, that's a, I want to be outside more and I want to get, you know, this kind of physical exercise. Well, find somebody in your life who is really good at that, has been involved in that practice for a long time and talk to them about, Hey, what are some ways that I could get started? And by the way, while you're answering that, what are some things you would tell me to avoid so that I don't get discouraged and quit? That's the places where an expert can be really, really, really helpful because our tendency is if I'm going to make big changes or even little changes, I'm probably going to go at it real hard right at the beginning. And an expert would tell you, bite off smaller chunks. Do a few small things in this direction and see how you feel about it. See if you like it. Um, see what's working and what's not working about it, and let's reevaluate in a few weeks. So those would be my uh, main suggestions: are that you're probably not going to just remove something and keep a void. So what are we going to what What is a healthy thing we can replace that with? How can we set some practical, achievable goals for that? And who in your life could be an expert to help you get started on some good strategies in that direction? I think that's all great, great stuff. And Jed, uh, what will we add to that in this? Love every bit of that. Um, rewind that. Listen to it again. Um, just underscore a couple of quick things and, and add a couple of quick things. Um, Lee is right that it's almost always easier to to replace something and to remove something. Very much to that end, it's very hard to pursue a negative. Let me explain what I mean. When you ask people about making changes, most people most of the time will tell you they want to be not XYZ. I want to be not overwhelmed. I want to be not afraid. I want to be not broke. I want to be not alone. It'll sound like almost a a small difference, but it in the living out, it's not. Pursuing I want to plan my schedule intentionally is much more doable than I want to be not lazy. Like mm. it seems like these would basically be interchangeable, but they're they're actually really not. So um as we think about the changes that we want to make, um we want to look out for what are the things where I'm like, I want to do not XYZ. And um find what is the to the positive version of that, both because in general it's probably healthier to think positive, but also because it's much more implementable. It's it's much more actionable to have this, I want to do this thing other than rather than not have this state that I don't like. Lee is absolutely right that it is much easier typically to add something new than to just delete something old, right? You know, you decide I want to, you know, I want to give up coffee in 2024. It's going to be a lot easier to say, 
I want to drink tea in 2024. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm starting my day with a cup of tea. And when it's, you know, break at work, I'm having a cup of tea. That is so much more likely to succeed than um, I'm going to not drink coffee. To that end, something that would be really good to kind of ask yourself, but it can also be really good to ask mentors in your life is the thing that you think you want to let go of. Let's give ourselves a pass for a second to not moralize about it at all in any way and ask this, what were those bad things giving you? The things that you're trying to let go of, what were they giving you? Because they were giving you something for sure. And if we're not sure what they were giving you, it's going to be a lot harder to find a, a new thing and a substitute that also meets those same needs. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean. In a lot of places in the world at this point, we pretty hard demonize smoking cigarettes. And certainly there's a, there's a ton of health problems with smoking cigarettes. Um, if, if, you, if you do smoke cigarettes, it'd be a great idea to look into quitting. If you, if you don't smoke cigarettes, it'd be a great idea to not. However, for people who smoke cigarettes, if you can dig it, most people actually get some very specific things out of that. The first is a sense of ritual. For a lot of people who smoke cigarettes, having a cigarette is one of those rituals through the day that helps you feel grounded, helps you feel like you're taking some time for you, helps you feel like you're taking a break. And rituals are really important. I mean, like really, really important. I don't mean religious rituals. I mean, just just rituals in life that help you to define where you are in your day. The next thing is a sense of outlet um, of like, you know, when I feel stressed out, when I feel like I need a break, when I feel like, you know, uh, all these customer service calls are getting to me, what's the thing that I turn to to help give me an outlet? For plenty of people, that's that's what a cigarette is. Um, is when I, when I need a break, this is the thing that gives me that break. There's nothing wrong with needing a ritual. There's nothing wrong with needing an outlet. A third thing is a sense of community. A lot of people, they take a cigarette break together. And so they're talking to their buddy or a couple of buddies during that cigarette break. And so it's an answer to relational needs in their lives. There's nothing wrong with that at all. If you were looking at, Hey, I'm smoking cigarettes and I need to, I need to let that go. I need to leave that in 2023. Asking what were the things other than just inhaling nicotine, what are the things this was doing for me is going to help you a lot in figuring out what we're going to do instead because you should still have rituals in your day and you should still have outlets and breaks in your day and you should still have that sense of community in your day. And if you put yourself in a situation where it's like, well, I just I just won't have those things, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. Um. Uh, both because you you deserve to have those things. Rituals and outlets and community are good, even if um, cigarettes aren't healthy. And also just saying, I'm going to not have these, these things that I like anymore. That's, that's going to be pretty hard to do. The one other thing that, that I would point you to, and this is a phrase that gets used a lot in the harm reduction world is the idea of any positive change. So much of our discussion about behavior change boils down to all or nothing thinking where it's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop smoking. So I'm, I'm going cold Turkey and I'm, and that's just how it's going to be. And, and here's the key thing is if that works for you, that's, that's great. If you're able to do that, that's great. If that fits your life, that's great. But also just so you know, making a 2% change tomorrow to the better versus what you used to do, that's a victory too. Yeah. Making a 1% change to the better over what you used to do. That's a victory too. any positive change. 
And the reason that it's important to lean into that is you can find a way, even if it's hands and knees, to make a positive change in your life. You don't have to go from zero to crushing it overnight. I add one quick thing as a final thought. Surround yourself with friends. If you don't have them, begin to make some friends who can celebrate the little victories. Yes. Everybody wants to be able to post on their social media channel. I haven't had a cigarette in six months and I'm amazing. And they want to get all the accolades that go with it. But dude, we all need friends where you can say, um, I normally smoke a pack a day and I tried to cut back and I'm one cigarette down from where I was and it's killing me, but I did it. I'm one cigarette down. We all need friends that will be like, heck yeah, you did. I'm proud of you, man. You got this. You're doing it. You're living it out. We all need friends that will support us when we're in that mode of any positive change. Because sometimes all of us need to take that approach. Nice. That is great stuff from both of these guys. Um, we, we've already had a, a lot of stuff from the world of coach jargon on this show. I will uh, bring in another type of great American jargon. That's corporate jargon. But this is a, a rare point where I think it's helpful. There's a, an acronym kind of that gets used in the, in the corporate world for setting goals. And it's SMART goals. And I think it really lays out pretty easily what a lot of these guys are saying. So the, the SMART is an, an acronym for SMART, or for specific, <coughs> measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-based. So when you think about setting a goal, which you should be doing, as, as these guys are saying, because it's easier to set a positive goal than to set a negative goal, think about it in those terms. Is it, what makes a good goal? Well, is it SMART? Is it specific? Is it measurable? Is it achievable? Is it relevant? Is it time-based? You know, to take to take uh, Lee's joke example from the first one, I want to I climb K2. Okay, that is specific. It is measurable. <laughs> from there on, we get some issues rolling around. Is it achievable? Right. And one of the ones I think is actually underrated in this is, is it relevant? Like, have you been mountaineering for years? Is climbing K2 relevant to, to your goals and what you want to do in your life and who you want to be as a person? Because I think a lot of times these positive and negative goals, as these guys have talked about, boil down to, I, I want to be this type of person. And that is, that's a terrible goal in a lot of ways, because how do you know when you are? Why do you want to be that type of person? Um, when do you want that? What What things do you want out of that? So um, as these guys have talked about, uh, keeping things small, keeping things where you can check off if you're doing it or not, you know, I want to get in shape, uh, is not a, as good a goal as I want to do 30 minutes of low impact cardio three times a week. Cause you can tell whether or not you're doing that one of those or not. Cause if you just, I want to read more, or I want to get in shape or I want to help people more that the more could never come. Cause again, if you're waiting for this feeling of transformation of being a totally different person who has better character and morals and all that, that's hard to check off a list. But did I volunteer once a month? Easy to check off a list. And if you don't, you can look at why is my schedule too packed? Am I too wrung out from work? What's stopping me? So a lot of great stuff from these guys. A lot of, a lot of very good stuff. On goal setting in the world is all, it's one of those things where there's a lot of bad advice floating around the internet, but specifically on setting a healthy goal, I think there's more good advice than on some other things. So don't be afraid to look around in some areas for that as well. All right. With that said, we're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, 
I'm a little confused about the way the Bible talks about Old Testament figures. Some of them do pretty bad stuff, but then the New Testament, they're described in glowing terms. David is a man after God's own heart. Abraham walked in faith. Moses was faithful in all God's house. Am I missing something here? And another really, really good question. Lee, where do we kick off here? Excellent question. I love um, that that you caught this and and that you're um, willing to express the confusion on this. And, and before we get any farther on this, I, I want to talk about something that can happen that's unfortunate in conversations with people um, who are believers or who are around church stuff or who encounter biblical stuff is we can, it's very easy to derail conversations that can be helpful about some of these things because people get encamped behind you know, or get entrenched behind the ideas of, oh, well, if you don't agree with me on how literal these, you know, some of these biblical accounts are about these human beings and who they were and what the times were and how long they lived and all these kinds of things, then we can't even have a conversation. So what we want to try to do when we have discussions like this is we want to, we want to diffuse as much as that as much of that as possible and say some people have um, views about biblical characters and their histories that is more metaphorical storytelling. And some people have extremely, extremely literal views of who these people were and how the Bible describes them. Let's not get caught in the weeds on that stuff. But let me say at the exact same time, the Old Testament, if you haven't spent much time in it, is a highly artistically organized work of literature. Regardless of how you feel about the histories being described here and the genealogies that are laid out for us and everything, the biblical authors who assembled these works for this little library, for this collection of of works, for the songs and the stories and the histories and the plays, all the things that are in the Old Testament— this is highly organized, creative, poetic literature, even in the histories and the genealogies, like even in the genealogies. It's wild. When you look at some of the original languages of these things, you realize they have established poetic poems and or poetic forms that are so easy to memorize. They're so repeated. They're so repetitive. They, so, they have so many links to different parts of of the books and all the stories and all that stuff. It's, it was so that it would be sticky. It was so that people could memorize them. It's really, really incredible stuff. I say a lot of that to lay some groundwork here. When we talk about a guy like David, it's very interesting. There are different sets of books that talk about the life of David in the Old Testament. One of them is the, the, like the scrolls of, of the, you know, what we call First and Second Samuel and what we call First and Second Kings. And then there's a whole other history of the life of David in what we call First and Second Chronicles. And what you'll find if you read both of those, that it's almost like a, two very different men are being described. When you read Samuel and Kings, you see a... You see, a morally paper-thin dude who barely holds it together and who is struggling from the jump. And I mean, all he has so many flaws and he has so many sins and he has so many problems and he is so emotionally just barely holding it together. Then when you read the when you read about this man named David in Chronicles, and it's the same man, this is a guy who is surrounded by mighty men and all they do is kick butt and win battles, and they are just amazing. 
This is an amazing, heroic figure. I say that to tell you these are not people describing two different people to you. These authors had different purposes for their works. So the things they included and the things they omitted were very, very intentional because they wanted to tell a certain kind of story to get a certain thing across to people who were going through different things. If we can't look at the Bible that way, because we everything has to be literal and it has to be, then we can't even get into some of the beauty of what the biblical authors have given us in these, in these rich, rich histories. Then you have the whole other compounding problem of the people who came to know Jesus and started Jesus-following communities writing in the New Testament about these people who came before them. And some of them would talk about their flaws and their sins and their problems, and some of them would just say, man, they were amazing uh, people of the faith. Regardless of the historicity of characters like Moses, Abraham, David, Daniel, regardless of that, we have to admit that these people were being written as archetypes. What that means is the biblical authors were saying, not only is this what happened in the life of, say, Deborah, or in the life of Tamar, or in the life of Solomon. Not only is this what happened in a specific person's life, this is what happens in human life. The the biblical authors were intending you to read this over and over again throughout the rest of your life and to see yourself as in a mirror. They wanted you to see this is the human heart. This is what happens to human beings. When we get into the New Testament, we see Jesus forgiving sin and literally rewriting people's history. So that the Apostle Paul says about a guy like Abraham, he didn't waver in unbelief. And it's like, well, you just have to read Abraham's story to see he wavered all the time. He was Captain Waver Pants. Like he was nothing <laughs> if not constantly wavering. But that's the mystery and the miracle of the grace of Jesus. And the forgiveness that's being offered is someone has literally offered to rewrite your entire history because he has paid your price for you. That's what the book of Romans is about. And so that's the way Paul presents Abraham in Romans. All that to say, I'm not saying these were not historical figures. I believe that they were, but I do believe that their histories were given to us in an archetypal fashion with a ton of of beautiful poetic design so that we would see not only Abraham, but we would see ourselves, not only Moses and the mistakes he made and the grace he found with a relationship with God, but we would see ourselves and we would, we would seek that same kind of rewriting and that same kind of mercy and grace. I think that's beautifully put. And Jed, what will we add to that? I uh, couldn't agree more. Lee absolutely crushed that. Um, it, we, we don't often think of biblical figures in the following light, but it, it does actually apply. And, and the, the Chronicles depictions of, of David are a really good example of this. Like these were popular politicians, man. Um, yeah, and uh, it turns out everywhere in the world, popular politicians generally get pretty good press. Um, <laughs> so uh, like I, I grew up, you know, in like Christian schools and, and very, very conservative environments reading about George Washington as basically a divine being. Um mm-hmm. There's no possible way that the actual human being, George Washington, was what the books I was reading when I was a six-year-old made him out to be. But he is um, uh, the beneficiary of popular politicians get really good press, man. History is written by the winners. So 
Uh, is there some of that going on with King King? By the way, that's like a, a political term. Is there some of that going on with King David? Yeah, there there probably is, man. Similarly, Moses was a political leader of a people group. Um, is there some of that going on with him? Yeah. And not exactly in the same way, but Abraham essentially was the big dude in charge of a, a large group of people at a certain point. So you know, again, there's there's a similar vibe there. And so just like Lee is pointing out, when we read the Bible, we are recognizing that different books written for different audiences and different purposes. Um, we're recognizing that uh, there are absolutely the, the use of, of archetypes and people kind of exempting some details to to make a larger point, which, by the way, happens in basically all forms of, of literature everywhere. Um, but there's another detail here that, again, actually dovetails with the last thing Lee said that I, I think is worth taking a look at because I think it's really important, and it does not get acknowledged around Christian stuff very often. So for the last year, I have been uh, doing some work to help a very specific kind of criminal court, which is a weird thing, but it's true. And the way that this particular court works is that it's set up for U.S. military veterans who finished their military service, and then they hit a hard time in their lives, and they did stuff they shouldn't have done, and they they broke the law. And this is a court where they are pleading guilty to, to their crime, but they're going to get some help. They're going to get a mentor. They're going to have people walk alongside them. They're going to get some job training. And at the end of kind of a, a fixed period, you know, if they're able to kind of hang out with the program, their whole record is going to be wiped clean. Um, and it's this really amazing, amazing thing. Now, here's where it starts to, to interface with what we're doing here. I have sat in a courtroom in the last year, and I've watched a judge, a literal judge, call up someone who has confessed to a crime. But here's the first thing that this judge says. Sir, would you tell me about the branch of the military that you served in? Now, would you tell me about the rank that you held in that branch? Now, would you tell me about the job that you did as a service member in that branch? And the judge listens for a little bit. And then the judge repeats back, you know, that work that you did was so important. You, you said that you delivered mail on a U.S. naval ship. People have got to get their mail. That's an important part of the, the United States military. It's necessary work. It's good work. Sir, we are grateful for your service. Um, you have made this a better nation by your work. Now I'd like to talk about the path forward for you with the problems that you are having. Nice. Let's pause for a second and think about that. We're taking someone, if you're in a courtroom pleading guilty, by definition, you are at one of the low points in your life. Like this is, things have gone poorly. If you've never been in a courtroom before, these are not happy places. And if you are in a criminal courtroom pleading guilty to a crime, oh man, you are not having a good day. Things are not going well for you. How bizarre and yet good and transformative that we begin by describing you at your very best. We're going to start by keying into this proud, accomplished moment in your life where you did good stuff and you made the world a better place. That is the single most hopeful thing I've ever seen happen in a courtroom. That's cool. And part of what's going on 
both in the depiction of people from the Old Testament, but also as Lee's talking about in, in what is being described in books like Romans, is that Christianity is a faith tradition that does exactly that. We are not looked at as our worst mistakes. We are not looked at as our worst moments. There is more to you than that. There is more to me than that. There's more to Moses than that. It doesn't erase the fact that Moses did some insanely inadvisable things at certain points. But that's not all that was true about him. There were amazing things that were true about him as well. And I can tell you, when you orient people towards identifying themselves by their best moments rather than their worst, it absolutely changes their lives. Amen. If you brand people with their mistakes, if you refer to people as inmate number XXXXXXX, man, what a terrible way to go through life. But if instead you refer to them by their proudest moments and their best moments, you are saying to them, you're still that guy. There's still hope for you. And that is exactly the message of the gospel is no matter what has come to pass, your best moments can still be ahead of, uh, uh, can still be ahead of you. There can still be hope for you. And that is good news. It definitely is. That is great stuff from both of these guys. And with that, we'll move on to our final question here comes in and says, is there a difference between wanting to succeed and or have nice things and being greedy? I think it's a, another great, great question. One of my, my favorite games to play with myself after uh, years and years of doing this podcast is what sermon did the person hear before they wrote this question? <laughs> and there's yeah. certainly a lot of uh, uh, the idea that any desire for comfort or having a nice thing or getting a promotion or success is evil or it is not great, it is not desiring the Lord. Now, if you do make more money, we'd love you to cut 10% our way. That'd be great. That's fine. For some reason, but uh, just a little speculation on my part, but uh, I think it's a great question nonetheless. And Lee, where do we start off? Yeah, man. I mean, this is uh, this is one of those things of like, how honest can I be with myself? Um, because the truth is that whatever pastor gave that sermon, he wants nice things. Yep. Um, he likes... He likes comfortable things and delicious food and, you know, you know whatever your thing is, really cool shoes, uh, really large televisions. Um, I like nice things. It's, you know, haven't always had many of them and every now and then get to enjoy something like that. That's really nice. Um, I think a big thing with trying to figure out what is greed and what is when particularly for people who are trying to follow Jesus, when Jesus is talking about greed, when Jesus' followers are talking about greed as something to to change from and move away from, what are we talking about besides just the natural normal thing of like, yeah, I like enjoying some nice things, whatever. I mean, at some point, this comes down to what's going on inside your heart. Like, um, and I want to take this back to something really, really great that Jed said in the very first question, which was um, like he was talking about, you know, whether it was whether it was smoking or wh- whatever, you know, the, the other thing, you know, other things you want to get out of your life in this year. And he had the great and probing question, do you know what you're getting from those things? And I think that's an amazing question to ask about the stuff that you want. 
what am I getting from yet another status symbol? Um, and it's like, it, it, this is not my thing, but it might be somebody's thing. What, what, what am I personally getting in, on, inside my life, inside my heart and mind, from yet another watch or whatever, or yet another car? Um, if I have the means to hook something like that up. It would be so choice. I highly recommend it. But like, what what would be the what would be the thing that I'm actually getting from that? And what do these things do for me? Um, and then the the other side of this question is, um, if you're a person that has a lot, you've been successful, and you have a lot of means, are you generous? Yeah. Um. I think it's probably one of the whole key things to this is, do you recognize that you are one of the few people in the history of the world who has the ability to help somebody else with resources they don't have access to? That is an incredibly amazing position to be in. Not many people, not a high percentage of people who have had great me- have had great resources in the history of this world have used those resources to benefit folks who did not have access to resources and as as we've said a million times on this show mostly jed has said it uh generosity is a muscle and it's an art form and it can atrophy if i'm not if i'm not practicing generosity i'm going to be weak in generosity and that's where I probably start to lose sight of what, you know, wealth and resources and, um, and, and status symbols and stuff like that, what those things are actually doing for me, what I think they're telling me about myself. But if I'm, but if I'm, if I'm being honest about the state of my heart and I'm flexing the muscles of creatively figuring out how to be generous, then that is going to be the thing that's going to move me away from the kind of the kind of greed that, that Jesus talked about and that Paul talked about and other followers of Jesus talked about. Extremely well put. A great place to start that off. And Jed, what would we have to add to that? It's, this is a fantastic question. Um, I do think that it's, it's worth noting that there isn't one easy, definable response to this. Like, we, we don't have a greedometer that we can point at you, and when it starts beeping, you're being greedy, right? So um, we, can, we can give you some guidelines, but um, you're going to kind of have to decide that for yourself. And uh, to whatever extent this question is being driven by, you know, a, a perchance overbearing sermon, um, you know, if, if you've got people in your life that are, you know, being weird to you about money from the pulpit, Eh, you know, maybe, maybe think about what church you want to go to. That might be something worth looking at. But as a couple of general ground rules, when adding more to your life wouldn't really improve it anymore, but you're still pursuing it, that's certainly greed adjacent. Mm. Now, yeah. the difficulty is that How do you define improving your life, right? I just said when more wouldn't improve your life, but you're still pursuing it. Well, how do we, how do we define improving your life? Well, that's up to you, man. Um, and that's, that's part of what makes questions like this really, really slippery. Um, but whatever it means to you, when we're trying to add more, 
but the more isn't really going to improve our lives, but we're going to pursue it anyway. We're certainly in, in the ballpark of greed. A- another way to look at it is to say that when we're getting diminishing returns, in other words, when we're improving things, but the amount that they get better is going down and is going down and is going down, that should probably, in general, cue a diminishing investment on our part, too, right? Like, if I got to spend more and more and more to get even just a little bit better, I guess I'll, I'll probably throttle back at a certain point. Like, if that's not happening, if like, oh, no, whatever, whatever the most is, that's what we need to do. That's a good moment to just start asking some non-judgmental why questions. Yep. Why? Why? And again, not not even from like a sense of like you've got to justify it more like explore this space. If you've got to have whatever it is, the the, the very best Q-tip in the world, a Q-tip made from spun gold. Well, why is that? Like, is you know, do you do you work as an ENT or an audiologist? And like, this is like a thing for your your work or, you know, you've just, you've always collected bejeweled Q-tips and this is like the Moby Dick of bejeweled Q-tips. And so, you know, it completes your collection, you know, but look at those questions. Look, look at that. Why are we pursuing it? Because the more that we can answer those questions again, in a non-judgmental way, the more that we may find that Oftentimes, greed is a way that people try to meet needs that they don't understand and they can't think of any other way to approach. For example, dude, I am just so lonely. And the more money I have, the more I can go out and I don't have to, you know, worry about what my bar bill is or whatever. So I can just be out, you know, where the people are all the time. And that makes me feel a little bit less lonely and like, the more I make, like the better, cooler places I can go and the people are cooler. And so you know, that's what I want to do. Okay, great. But, it, but, but are you actually feeling less lonely off of that? We, we started with you feeling lonely, which is a totally legit thing and wanting to do something about that. Is any of this resulting in you being less lonely? Because if it's, if it's not, it's, it's, you don't need to feel bad about the money one way or another, but why don't we find something that more direct, more directly addresses the loneliness? If that's what we're dealing with, not in all cases, but a lot of the time, again, greed is a misdirected way to solve problems when we can't think of another way to solve those problems. We got to find the, ask those why questions to dig into, to what those issues might be. Here's here's two more bonus points to look at just as as thoughts. And again, I can't emphasize enough. No judgment, no judgment, no judgment, no judgment. The first is an idea called lifestyle creep. And what this means is that when you get a little bit more money, you know, you go from the generic cornflakes to like the brand name cornflakes. And then when you get a little bit more money than that, you go from the brand name cornflakes to like the whole food brands cornflakes. And each time you upgrade, it starts feeling like a little bit of a luxury. Like, oh, that's nice. That's a little treat for me. And then you're like, okay, but now this is just normal. This is just like my bare minimum standard. I can't, I can't, I'm not, you know, I can't, I'm not an unsophisticated rube. I've got to live a life where I've got the whole food cornflakes, y'all. Okay. The key thing is there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but 
if we're not monitoring lifestyle creep, it can lead us to a place where we start to think that we kind of need things that we don't necessarily care about. If you if you upgrade 100 areas of your life, it's kind of worth looking at how many of those 100 areas do you actually care about? Mm-hmm. How many of those 100 areas are like really important to you and really rewarding to you versus just, well, I've, I've got more money. I guess I'll just spend it this way now. And then that leads to something that Lee has already pointed at, which is appearances. Are you trying to keep up with the Joneses? Again, no judgment, but, but if you are, why? What is it that you think you will get out of keeping up with the Joneses? And are there other ways to address those needs? The last thing that I would say, because you're probably coming from a Christian worldview if you're listening to this podcast, is when Christians comment on money, they tend to do a few things, most of which are extraordinarily unhelpful. First of all, they get wildly judgmental. If you remember one thing from my answer, no judgment. If you want to figure out how to use money in in a good way, in a godly way, in a fun way, in a helpful way, don't judge yourself. That's not going to help anything. Thing number two is Christians tend to disparage the little things that bring you joy. Um, like, does it bring you joy to go to Starbucks? Well, you're wrong. You're bad to go to Starbucks and I hope you feel bad. See, I could be a famous Christian writer on finance. Forget (laughs) all of that. Find the little things that, that bring you joy and feel totally good about spending what you feel good about on those things. But then that last piece that, that Lee brought up is figure out what generosity looks like for you and begin to live it out. Christians will tell you that you should be generous, but they almost never actually get you to that point. Start figuring out how to be generous today. And I think that that's going to help a lot in figuring out the rest of it. I think that's all fantastic stuff. Lee, one more thing on this. You know, the only thing I was going to say, actually, I was just waving at somebody, but I will say (laughs) if I, if I remember one thing from Jed's answer, it's going to be the bedazzled Q-tips from spun gold. You got to have them, man. What else? How else are you going to clean your ears? That's right. Don't clean your ears that way, by the way. We don't give much medical advice in the show, but uh, don't put metal in your ears. That's not helpful. Gold spun, <laughs> though it may be. Uh, again, great stuff from these guys. Um, the verse that always comes to mind when I'm thinking about this stuff, and maybe the one you heard the terrible sermon on, is uh, from Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. Or thieves do not break in and steal. But for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I think there is a way overcooked interpretation of that, of don't have anything. Because right. uh, if we read carefully, he does not say, do not have things on earth where moth and vermin destroy, uh, thieves break in and steal. He says, don't store your treasures there. And that, I think, is an interesting and important difference. Now, critically, um, uh, you know, Jed may have obliquely mentioned a famous Christian finance guy whose whole thing is about your, how good a person you are is how much money you have in your savings account. And, uh, we're, we're putting that much in the savings account. That's, you know, maybe moth and rust don't destroy, but, uh, interest rates can certainly take a bite out of it. So <laughs> temporary in its own way. But I think if you're looking for, is this just something I I want because it's it's helpful and it makes my life better and I like it. Or is it somewhere we're getting into some kind of problem? I think is this your treasure is, while maybe a bit uh, esoteric, is a good uh, measure because 
treasure in the sense of not it is that follow up of there your heart is. Um, if you value something so much that you think it defines you or you think it will give you some kind of other thing, as you guys mentioned, status things, you know, I buy the expensive whatever car or bag or house or whatever, because then I'll be the kind of person who has that. And it'd probably be better than it is now when I'm not the kind of person who has that. That's very different and not as good and really not helpful to your life in the sense of you could have by be buying the same car or bag or house with the idea of this fits my life. We want to, we want to expand our family. We need more room or I want a nicer car because I drive to work every day or I just like cars. And this is a fun thing. It's great to have a fun thing. Things can be fun. As we often point out on this show, Christianity and Buddhism are different religions. And sometimes Uh I get wires crossed on that. Um, you are, you're not in any, uh, way, uh, whenever Jesus tells someone, sell all your stuff, he always adds that give to the poor part. So, uh, we may, and we may intuit from that, that maybe that's the part that we should f- be focusing on a little bit more than the not having any stuff in those particular stories. Um, these guys gave you a lot of great stuff on that. Just one more bit for thought. And with that, we will sign off here. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, the bridge, Chicago, .tumble.com slash ask. I want to keep that entirely anonymous. Take on the song this week. This one is from our friends Thomas and Caleb, collectively known as the Yearwoods. Go to the mountains. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God bless you. There's nothing you can do about it. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my love is unfailing for you. When your city is afflicted, when you are lashed by storms, I will build you up where you are torn. Oh, my love will not be shaken, my compassion never cease, my covenant for you is peace. Don't be afraid, don't fear disgrace, you will not suffer shame. Your maker is your husband, with compassion in his face, the Lord Almighty is his And the hills be removed Yet my love is unfailing for you When your city is afflicted When you are lashed by storms I will build you up where you are torn Oh, my love will not be shaken My compassion never cease My covenant for you is peace. Don't be afraid. Don't fear disgrace. You will not suffer shame. Your maker is your husband with compassion in his face. The Lord Almighty 
compassion in his face. The Lord Almighty is his name.